I'm sat in a pub, one of those dingy ones near the hospital that's always empty. I'm reading a news story on my phone about some artist who died. There's only one other person here, a man sat at the bar, slumped forward on his elbow. He's got a leather jacket on, this thick, bald head poking out above it. Without really thinking about it, I stand and move towards him, sitting up on one of the stools, curling my back over the bar. I absentmindedly move a beer mat around with one of my fingers. Been working today, he says, and I turn. He has a set, ridged face, red and cracked and sullen. I tell him that I work nights, and that this is my day off. I did nights when I was your age, he says. Absolute nightmare. I tell him that I like the quiet, which is true. When I met the missus I had to pack it in, best thing that ever happened to me. I make a vaguely agreeable noise. Yeah, it's uh, 30 years now we've been together. I make a noise again. Three sons, oldest is probably your age. How old are you? I tell him that I'm 27, which is a lie. I tell him my name is Michael. He nods. Yeah, Rory, my oldest, is 29. He stops to order another drink. He seems intoxicated, this odd little sway to his movements, but he could just be an alcoholic. Lots of my regulars who buy a litre of vodka every night have these jitters or stammers and these sunken, bugged-out eyes, regardless of how inebriated they are at that specific point. The man starts talking about being a plumber, which is of no interest to me. As he talks, I think about all the things I could say to him. I could tell him that my parents died in a fire when I was seven. I could tell him that I collect bottle caps. I could tell him that I live with three roommates. He starts talking about his sons again. Now, nah, it was like, you know, I want to be supportive. I want to be a good dad, right? Sure, I say. So like, when Rory, uh, when Rory told us that he was, that he was gay, I, uh, I'm not going to say it was easy for me, but like, I knew I had to do the right thing, you know? Yeah, I say, shuffling on the stool. My pint is half drunk and I'm spinning it with my right hand, clasping it from above like one of those grabber machines in an arcade. The man is stuttering, avoiding my eyes. I'm a bit old-fashioned, but it's, it's not a done thing, you know? That's my son. Sure, I say. So I... We had the talk and uh, he had boyfriends and we'd have them over and, and say the right things and that was... I could handle it. I nod. But then when, when James, our second, when he started going out to, uh, to clubs with Rory, I, um, I had to brace myself, I guess. He told Sarah, my, my wife, before he told me. And it was difficult for me, I won't lie. You have all these ideas of what being a father is going to be like, of raising these sons, and before me I found something that I didn't recognise or understand. Okay, I say. And I started to think, like, did I do something wrong? Was it to do with me or, or with Sarah? Uh, and then uh, Matt, our youngest, is just, um, he gestures his hands at me. I nod. Which is just, that's not bad luck at that point, is it? That's something I've done. That's some punishment from God, maybe. I keep thinking back on all the things I've said. The sort of father I've been. He's staring down at the floor, his face blank. I just... I don't know what I did to deserve this. Later, in bed, I take my pill, 
and struggle to fall asleep. Words echoing and looping, images repeating, flashing before my eyes. My head is heavy, my pillow uncomfortable. I don't know what time I fall asleep. In my dream, I'm floating above Brighton, my arms stretched out on either side of me. I'm naked, my penis dangling below me. On both of my hands are stigmata, blood pooling and dripping from the crimson holes. Beneath me the city is laid out, and I'm passing over it. I'm not flying, I can't feel the wind or sense my own movement. It's more that I'm transporting, suddenly and without thought, like slides changing in a projector. The blood from my hands is dripping down onto the city, disappearing from view far below me. From up here the ground looks flat and unreal, like a texture in a video game. I can see the pavilion, the skeleton of the West Pier, the memorial next to Waterstones. I can see the where I work, the flat that I'm asleep in right now. I can feel myself turning upward, rotating slowly towards the sky. It is a feast of stars, bright and clear and vivid. Between the pulsing lights, space is filled in by these splashes of purple and blue. My right hand is suddenly free, and I reach up to heaven, trying to pull myself towards it. I wake up. It's dark outside and my alarm is ringing. I've worn the same polo at work for the last four shifts, and it's starting to smell, so I add it to the pile of clothes in the corner of my room and grab another one from the drawer. My shoes are starting to fall apart, the heel at the back detaching itself ever further with each step. I eat two pieces of toast with butter, drink a Red Bull, and leave my flat. On the walk to work, a bus pulls up on the opposite side of the road, and I pause, looking across at a tableau of faces lit up in the windows. There are people of all ages, all styles, each segmented in profile. Like many things in life, it seems arranged to my benefit rather than the result of random chance. At work, I serve my regulars. Sallow, decaying men slumping towards cirrhosis. Shadows on this world, devoid of influence. In moments of reflection, it occurs to me that I should feel some twinge of guilt for my role in their struggle, but I don't. I just watch with interest at the way their hands judder, at the cracked skin around their lips, at the stains and sweat marks on their clothes. I watch one of them leave, his combed and treated hair flapping in the wind like an unsecured car boot on the motorway. I walk home past the council offices and the boutique clothing stores deserted at this hour. On my left there are three art shops. The first two are darkened but the third is lit up by floor lights and the window display. I stop to look, seeing only one canvas propped up on an easel. It's a painting of Wonder Woman kneeling by this little girl, handing over her shield. It's probably some sort of print or stencil, awash with dissonant neon colours. I stand there, looking through the glass, and a thought floats into my head. I would rather hang a swastika in my front room than this painting. I'm in a bar. This place used to be a darkened pub, where sullen locals complained about football or politics or whatever else it is that normal people talk about. Whoever has taken over the lease has spared no expense, installing a thick glass bar, high tables, those round chairs with the stumpy little backs, all presumably in an attempt to lure in the cosmopolitan set. It is empty, of course, 
save for one woman who is throwing back gin and tonics at the bar. I'm drinking a bottle of Mexican lager that costs six pounds. I clean myself before coming here. I'm not sure why. I'm sat at one of the high tables, facing the bar. I don't have my phone out and I'm drinking methodically, only taking a sip every minute or so. The man behind the bar is doing everything in his power to avoid eye contact with the woman, needlessly polishing glasses or fiddling around with taps, or going over to a laptop secreted under the bar to amend the playlist. I wait, sipping my beer and looking around me. Eventually she spots me, standing from her chair with a strangely enthusiastic expression, like we've met before. She walks over to my table, stumbling a little with the final step, and sits across from me, blocking my view of the bar. She's 50 maybe, though I'm not good at guessing that sort of thing. What are you doing here, she says. I tell her that I've had a long day at work, which is a lie. She asks more questions, with a slightly interrogatory air. I tell her that my name is Peter, that I'm 24, that I work in a crepe shop. I tell her that my mother lives in London and that my father was killed in a bullfight when I was a child. She tells me I don't look very Spanish, and I say that he was French, and that bullfighting has a small but devoted audience in southern France. She nods, says how terrible it is. I tell her that I live with two brothers called Rory and James, both gay. She smiles, finally something relents within her. I ask her about herself. She tells me that her name is Christine. I ask her why she is here. I don't feel safe in my house right now. Oh, I say. Uh, no, not... I, I live alone. There was a... Uh... She leans her head down, fiddling around inside her handbag. Something happened. I nod. My husband, Simon, disappeared last year, just before Christmas. He vanished one day, without anything. No note, no. All of his things were still at home. Wallet, car keys, clothing even. Police told me after a couple of days to expect the worst, but he never showed up. And for the first few weeks, every day you're just waiting for news, but as the months pass you have to start having this difficult conversation with yourself, of how long do I wait until I'm sure he's gone. Because for the first few months some part of me expected to see him in the kitchen every time I came home. He wasn't a happy man, but he wasn't... He didn't strike me as the type. But ours was not a fulfilling marriage. I ask her when they got married, late, uh, maybe ten years ago. I'd been married before, he hadn't, though he had a child and I didn't. Think about asking her why she didn't have children, but don't. So for the last year I've been pulled between states almost, flitting between my life as it was and my life as it will probably be, in this house that feels alien and other. And then, and this was on the exact anniversary of Simon's disappearance, I was walking from my kitchen into the front room with the conservatory doors on my left and as I looked into the conservatory a man fell through the roof. I flash her a puzzled expression. He fell from the sky, smashed through the conservatory roof and then through the glass panels of my coffee table. His face was halved. He was on his side looking towards me and the left side of his face was whole but the right side of his face was gone disintegrated. His body seemed without definition, this foul sculpture of bone and gore and glass. He seemed limitless, arcane, 
and I just stood there, didn't open the door, just stood there. I didn't call the police either, one of my neighbours must have done it. I'm staring straight at her. They said he fell from a plane. I've heard stories about this, people, men mostly, climb up the landing gear to hide within the plane, and pass out in the low oxygen once they hit altitude, and then die of asphyxiation or exposure during the flight, and get dropped when the wheels descend for landing. But this man was old, he must have been 70, it doesn't make sense, and my house, I, I don't know, I'm not a believer in the supernatural, but something is off with it, wrong, and I can't think of an explanation. Do you believe in that sort of stuff? I tell her I saw a ghost when I was a child, soon after my father's death. She drops her head, as if indicating me to continue. I say that I was six or seven, and that I would struggle to sleep and end up roaming the house at night. This big Victorian semi-detached, full of bricked up chimneys and hidden corners. That I would scurry around in the dark, feeling or sensing my way through the house. And you would always feel things, I say. You would always sense a presence. Houses like that can't help but soak up all the history that's unfolded within them. But it was never specific, never more than just this little whisper, a chill on the back of your neck. After watching my father writhing in the dirt, his hands desperately clutching at the hole I had watched the animal gore in him, I had felt odd, ill at ease, though I would struggled to express it. The house became threatening in some way, its dark corners and passageways held no comfort, just this strange, transportive otherness. I remember my inner voice would spiral into rambling, babbling rhythms and sounds filling my head, with no refuge or escape. And I knew it was him. I didn't know how, there was nothing deductive about it. I just knew. Then, after a few months, Mum sold the house, and we moved, and that was it. The woman nods at me. I think a lot of us have experiences as children that we later struggle to rationalise, she says. But there's always an explanation. It's just that sometimes we never get it. Prior to my breakdown, I rarely talked to anyone, did everything in my power to avoid sharing even the briefest of words with colleagues or neighbours or retail workers. And that's largely unchanged, but I find myself seeking things out, as if guided by something subconscious, something buried so deep within me that I barely know it's there, and I don't know what purpose this serves. It frightens me sometimes. I take my pill and get into bed, looking up at the ceiling, wondering how anyone ever falls asleep. In my dream, I'm entertaining a group of people in a candlelit room. It's almost Germanic, these high ceilings with wooden beams, mounted animal skulls on the wall, a crackling fire to my left. I don't recognize any of the people, and they seem indistinct, as if their faces change shape whenever I look away. I'm telling them stories, or jokes, that seem sensical but aren't. Just these streams of words that mean nothing when put together. Around me, people are laughing. We're drinking red wine and I keep sloshing mine over the table. Eventually, I get up and walk to my room, which is a hotel suite, weirdly shaped like a trapezoid with windows on three of the walls. I bolt the door, then move to each of the windows, securing them carefully and pulling the curtains too. 
Then I head to the bathroom, and for some reason I'm worried that I'm about to piss blood, but I don't. I brush my teeth. In the mirror I see that I'm wearing a shirt and tie, which is unusual. I return to the room, pulling my tie loose as I do so. As I turn the corner I hear a noise, this thin, gurgling sound. A man is standing in the room, and I can feel my breath shorten. He doesn't seem to register me, and I can't really see him, just this figure in the dim light. I approach him, slowly, tapping him on the shoulder. He turns, and his face is yellow, curdling and melting as I watch. I wake up. I've sweated through the bed. I get up and look at my phone. There's an email from my father asking about my plans for Christmas, which I ignore. I read about a terrorist attack, then about the casting for the new Marvel film. I put on some clothes and head out. It's early morning, and the streets are empty. I head into alleyways and dark corners. I stare up at tower blocks. I creep through underpasses and alcoves. Down by the beach, there are these cut-out semicircles in the brickwork, big enough to shelter but not exactly protected from the elements. During the summer, I saw two paramedics trying to resuscitate a homeless man in one of them. Tonight, they're empty, probably due to the cold. There's a boarded-up building down here too, and the closed-off stairs to Madeira Drive. There are these camper vans parked up by Duke's Mound, full of self-styled eccentrics asleep at this hour. I keep walking towards the marina, moving up through the car park, smelling the piss stench of the stairwells. On the floor before the top I can hear a noise, and I stop, pushing the door open an inch. It sounds like voices, two or three of them, but clustered and incoherent, like they're speaking in tongues. I look through the gap in the door, and ten or so meters in front of me, between two concrete pillars, stands a man his back turned. The voices are all from him, this overlapping noise, babbling and snapping and fighting. I move the door a little more, and it creaks, loud enough for him to hear it, his head twitching as he turns towards me. I wake up again. Immediately I start to worry, but as I get dressed for work, the unease slips to the back of my mind, and by the time I arrive at work, I have forgotten the incident entirely. At work I serve a short man with a red face, maybe 60. He brings a four pack of Heineken up to the till and asks for 40 Marlboro Reds. As I'm grabbing the cigarettes he says, I'm going to kill my wife, with an audible intensity. I have often found the tonal gap between sincerity and humour to be worryingly small in the speech of others, so I let out what I hope is a humorous exhale as I turn back to face him. I scan the cigarettes and tell him it will be 28.50. He hands me a 20 and a 10. I'm going to kill my wife. He looks incensed, this little vein pulsing on his forehead. I hand him his change and watch as he leaves the store. I start to think about what I would do if I saw his face on the newspaper tomorrow or the next day. What I would do if the police came to see me watch the CCTV footage of me staring blankly at him. Joe, who works nights with me, emerges from the back room. He goes up to the parking lot to smoke weed most shifts, and then stumbles through the store, bleary-eyed, discounting baked goods or tidying cans of beans. I tend to stay on tills. 
I like the vantage it gives me, the observations I can make. Joe sometimes tries to talk to me, but today he's wordless, his unsteady hands straining the boxes of cup of soup, his eyes red like a demon. As we're looking up, Joe looks to me, pulling his jacket tight around him. Seems to get colder every day, doesn't it? I grunt something back and turn to walk away. High above me, a seagull floats in place on an airstream, falling and rising as if dangling on a string. I'm in a pub near my flat. I haven't cleaned myself in days. I'm starting to smell. The pub is probably trendier than what I would normally go for. There's lots of faux 1920s memorabilia around the walls, music hall posters and pictures of flappers with those long cigarette handles clasped in their fingers. It's busy, too busy. I'm sat at a little table in the corner, drinking something local that's supposed to taste like mango but basically just tastes like beer. The barman has a little moustache and ridiculous blown out hair like a DIY mullet. I don't understand the recent drive amongst my peers to look as stupid as possible. It's probably something to do with generational hopelessness, the impending environmental apocalypse, the all but ironclad certainty of a life on the poverty line. But I guess it's harmless. I turn to look at a framed photo of Al Capone hanging on the wall, and when I turn back to the bar, a man is already in the process of approaching me. He sits down at the other chair, slamming a pint glass down on the table. I can smell the booze on him. He's 50 maybe, with messy thinning hair and a grey beard. His teeth are dark and misshapen, jutting out at strange angles as he opens his mouth and sends a wave of pungent breath towards me. Do I know you from somewhere, mate? I say that it's unlikely he does. He scratches at his head before clicking his fingers. The dogs. What, I say. The dogs. You're at the dogs whenever I go there. I don't say anything. Yeah, doesn't matter if it's Thursday or Saturday or pissing it down with rain, you're always there. I've never been to the dogs. I look at the man. Yeah, I say. You've got me. I always thought you must be a trainer or something. I tell him that my uncle is a trainer and that I've been helping out due to a period of unemployment, hence my frequency at the track, though I do note that I'm very much not there every day. Alright then, the man says. Nah, it's like... It's a good day out, but I never come away with anything. I tell him that the only way to really make money is through split bets, but that the results are never especially predictable. Yeah, yeah, he says, brushing the side of his nose. He has a green jacket on, Parker. He smells of booze and urine and sweat. Do you ever talk to the Tic Tac guys down by the track? Yeah, I say. They're miserable bastards. He laughs, and I catch another waft of breath. He tells me about his life, growing up poor, leaving school at 16, a failed attempt to join the army during the Falklands, 20 years of labouring and odd jobs, leading up to his current self-employment, buying and selling army memorabilia online. It's a small market, but the margins are good, especially when you live round here, he says. It's rough getting up at half four every Sunday to hit all the car boot sales and keeping track of eBay listings and auctions and knowing which of the antique shops will want what is a nightmare, but it's all me, you know, on my own two feet. Yeah, I say, starting to pick through his mangled autobiography at the throwaway lines, the diversions, the obfuscations, trying to determine what specifically went wrong. 
Take this jacket. He holds open the front of the jacket, unleashing another wave of piss and sweat. I could buy this jacket for 20 quid, right? Wash it, good photos, that's a hundred on eBay. Right, I say. Or, I take it to my friend Keith down in Hove, he gives me 70 cash, sells it for 120. He says, burping as soon as the words are out. Sure, I say, wandering through this maze of dysfunction. The barman rings a little bell. Look, he says, downing the last of his pint. My place is just above here, if you want to squeeze a couple more in. I'm thrown by this, and unsure if he's trying to pick me up, or if he just wants to ramble at me about his awful life for another hour or two, before passing out in a puddle of sweat. I'm never very good at figuring out when people are trying to sleep with me, not that it happens too often. I swallow, make some awkward excuse about being needed at the track tomorrow, and leave the pub, a solid quarter of my pint still sat on the table. I feel intense as I walk home, swapping across roads and skipping upstairs. It's a full moon, which seems unusually low in the sky, half disappearing behind a cream council block as I pace up the hill. In bed, I take my pill and stare at a crack starting to form in the corner of the ceiling. I'm ascending the stairs behind the pub. They're metal, screwed into the outside of the building, like the fire escapes they have outside apartment blocks in American films. He's in front of me, wearing these thick hiking boots that clank on each step. He stumbles a little as he makes the top. His door is grey, thick. If you didn't know someone lived here, you wouldn't guess it. You'd assume it was a generator room or a storage unit. I think about offering to take my shoes off as I enter, but I don't. He asks me what I'd like to drink. I stare at his teeth, at the brown plaques circling their roots. It occurs to me that I don't even know his name, and that he never asked me for mine. I was going to tell him that my name was Matthew. I was going to tell him that I was 27. I was thinking of telling him that my mother was killed by a drunk driver, or that she was in prison for tax evasion, or that she just up and vanished one day, without leaving anything behind, not even her purse or car keys. He tells me to get something from the fridge, and join him in the lounge afterwards. I take a left and open the door to the kitchen. I'm hit with the odour of pestilence and rot as soon as I open the door, but something about it doesn't disgust me, doesn't horrify me, doesn't stop me. The decor in the kitchen seems at least 40 years old, the brown tiling, the peeling wallpaper, the gas ring hob, the fridge even, an ancient thing probably pumping enough CFCs into the atmosphere to make another hole. It's like a museum. On the counter there are dirty plates piled high, empty beer bottles, mounds of cutlery, mugs thick with dried coffee. Then I see the bin, its lid resting on the floor, flies circling the bulging mass of takeaway boxes and ready meal tubs spilling out from it. I look to the fridge, then back to the bin, staring at the centerpiece, a grey plastic tub with a streak of congealed red sauce running around the rim. I look behind me to check the door is closed, then walk to the bin, my hands stretching out before me. I run my finger through the sauce, scooping a little up and bringing it to my mouth instinctively. I run it across my tongue, slowly, thoughtfully. I swallow. I take the tub and throw it to the floor. Beneath it sits a metal container with a few grains of rice that I pick up and eat. There must be hundreds of containers in this bin. I turn to check the door behind me again, 
My foot is tapping against the floor. One more check behind me, and then I hurl myself at the bin, ripping through containers, shoveling cold sauce into my mouth, digging further in, pulling up flecks of mold, wrinkled prawns and cardboard cartons, whole legs of rancid chicken. I force myself to swallow, dipping my head into the bin entirely, pushing down until I'm in darkness, pulling bits of food and packaging towards myself. I'm almost vertical now, my shoulders and arms inside, pulling myself down, swallowing fetid, odorous substances, gorging myself on them, pulling down, my whole body swimming in the juices, soaking through my clothing and my skin, pulling down until the man and his apartment are a distant memory, till I am surrounded by blackness, warm and moist and uncomfortable. I wake up coughing vomit over my bed sheets. I realise quickly that it must have been caught in my mouth due to the strange angle of my body when I fell asleep. I stagger to my feet, running to the bathroom to vomit again. All I can think about is the smell of that man's jacket. I drink some water, followed by a Red Bull, and head out for a walk. I head over to the cliffs near Rotting Dean, looking down at the sea. I like to come here to think sometimes, no one seems to bother you as long as you don't stray too near to the edge. The sea is rough today, hurling itself back and forth. It's spitting but not quite raining, and I can feel my hair getting progressively damper as I stand there. I can see the shadows of wind turbines in the distance, far out to sea. I've always tended towards self-analysis, even from a young age. Once it became clear that I would never understand the world around me, I instead decided I would try to understand myself my motivations, my hang-ups, my faults. But that too has proven insurmountable. I look into myself and see something fathomless, beyond comprehension. I have no understanding of myself, no frame for my actions, no basis for my problems. And I'm not even looking to fix myself at this point, just to have some clarity, some insight as to what exactly went wrong as the ship sinks around me. I hover, almost taking a step forward, but I don't. I turn and start the walk back to my flat. <laughs>